Would you please uh, stand again, and we will look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Interestingly, our book of church order uh, says that we're to preach a sermon and then ordain and install. It's not the first time I've done things backwards. It just seemed like a better way to do things. So let me read at Acts chapter 20, verse 17, this passage in which Paul speaks for a final time to leaders from the church at Ephesus. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, please do help us as a congregation to feel the weight, the impact, the seriousness of these words from your word. But help us to know as well that the riches of your grace are sufficient for all of us as we make this journey. So, Lord, be with us by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This um, 
This next few minutes really is an encouragement, I hope, for these officers whom we've just ordained and installed and serving officers. Uh, But I I hope it's an encouragement for all of us uh, as a church because these things do pertain to all of us. I'm going to speak again for just a few minutes uh, to our new officers and and even serving officers uh, and all other officers. But please take this in, folks, because this has application to us all. Uh, And from this passage, I want to I, I want to extract three ideas, and I'll give you three words that, um, that I hope you'll remember. And, and I hope, brothers, that you'll keep this passage before you, that you'll meditate on it, reflect upon it, uh, take it into your souls, because it's really, really important for us in our day and time. Here are the three words that I want to that I want to give us three words that lead to three challenges, but that come with three reminders. The first word is verities, verities. The second is vigilance, and the third is virtue. Verities, vigilance, and virtue. Verity derives from a Latin word, verus, which means true or truth. True or truth. What is the challenge associated with that idea, with that word? Well, the challenge, folks, it seems to me, is simply this. We live in a world very much like the world in which Paul lived. We live in a world very much like the world in which the Ephesian elders lived. It is a very pluralistic world. It is a very diverse world. And in the midst of that world, hear what the Apostle Paul says regarding verities. He says in verses 21 and 22 of this passage that he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20, I'm sorry. He says that he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. And then he says in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The first thing for us all to remember is that there is a truth content to this faith. There is a truth content to this faith. And it is true apart from me. It is true apart from what I think about it. There is a truth content to this faith. In Paul's day, and and you may remember this passage, Acts chapter 17, in Paul's day, places like Athens were cauldrons of pluralism, and so was Ephesus. And you remember in Acts chapter 17 that while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy, um, having been sent to Athens from Berea, having then previously been in Thessalonica where he was attacked and, and beaten and then led to Berea where people were more noble than the folks at Thessalonica, the folks from Thessalonica hounded him even down to Berea, and Paul was sent away to save his life, to preserve his life. 
And he arrived in Athens and was waiting for Silas and for Timothy to come. And while he was in Athens, he was deeply troubled as he walked the streets, as he found himself in the midst of the boiling cauldron of pluralism. All of these ideas that were pervasive, that permeated that city and and even the wider culture of of the Greco-Roman world. There were Stoics, there were Epicureans, there were Platonic dualists, there were agnostics in the middle of all of this. You can read Acts 17 and you can see them. Tremendous religious diversity, and in the midst of that religious diversity, whether in Ephesus or in Athens, Paul said, this is true. This is true. That's what led to his famous Mars Hill speech in the Areopagus in Athens. People heard what he said. Now he testified of Jesus Christ and, and how he sought to assert that there was one God and that that God was the author of everything that exists and that God is the one who sets boundaries for people and for nations and, and for all of creation. And that one God had appointed one man. He had appointed that one man to come in judgment, judging righteously. And the validation, the vindication of this one man's prospective coming in judgment was the resurrection. And it was the idea of the resurrection, bodily, material, physical resurrection, that so provoked people and said, we've got to hear more of this. This is foolishness. You're a lunatic. But you see, what Paul did in the midst of that diversity was affirm and assert that things are true. There are certain things that are true. And he reminds the Ephesian elders that he didn't shrink or retreat from talking about these things, whether publicly or from house to house. This is a great challenge, friends. We live in that kind of world. You've seen the bumper stickers. You've seen the coexist bumper sticker. Now look, I don't have time to trace 20 centuries of the history of the church. I'll just declare it, and if you want to take it up with me, then let's meet for coffee. But here's what I can tell you. That when through the centuries Christians have gone back to the sources, meaning the Gospels and the life of Jesus, what they find in the Gospels is a compulsion to live at peace with all people in the midst of that diversity. When they don't live at peace with people in the midst of all of that diversity, it is because they have abandoned the lifestyle that Jesus summons people to. A lifestyle in which forgiveness is extended gladly, in which love and compassion are extended indiscriminately. Christians, when they're true to their Savior and true to their source documents, this Word of God, which we read every Sunday and seek to understand, when they are true, they coexist with people of all faiths. 
But you know what that bumper sticker is saying. It's not talking about coexistence. It's communicating something else. Every one of those symbols in the minds of those who put those bumper stickers on their cars, and I'm not here to pick a fight. If you're here for the first time, please know this. I'm not here to pick a fight. But all of those symbols simply represent the cafeteria of options that are out there, and you're free to select one. Let's just live in peace. It's an advocacy of a diversity, a pluralism, whose presupposition is there is no objective truth. And Paul stands in the midst of Ephesus and in the midst of Athens, and he begs to differ, and he grounds his teaching, his preaching on this one great event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You've got to deal, my friends, with what is a matter of history, a matter of history which has forever changed the course of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's true, objectively true, irrespective of what I think about it. Now, here's the reminder. These verities, these truths we cherish We'll do our dead level best to protect them, defend them, teach them, preach them, the whole counsel of God from beginning to end, start to finish. But here's the reminder. That truth is a person. That truth is a person. I am the way and the truth and the life, says Jesus. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My friends, textbooks do not free people. Propositions do not free people. A person frees people. And the gospel is that the truth has come into the world. Jesus Christ is the truth, and he is the one whom to know is to know eternal life. Christianity, from start to finish, is about relationships. Relationship to God, the vertical relationship, and relationships with others, the horizontal relationships. And Jesus Christ is the incarnation of everything related to those twin realities. We teach, we preach, we tell the truth about Jesus who is a great Savior and who has come into the world. See, this is, this is the glorious story. When we talk about the gospel, when we preach, when we teach, when we seek to make these things known, we're talking about someone whose ultimate objective, whose ultimate purpose is to restore Shalom, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to relieve the distress and the death that permeate and plague life and this world. He has come into this world to crush them underfoot. He has come into this world to bring consummation to the promise his father first made, to restore order, to bring in a new world, a new age in which 
Righteousness and justice and compassion and mercy rule and reign because he is the incarnation of those things and in his kingdom he will rule in righteousness and mercy and compassion. Here's what I love about that. Here's what I love about that. That rings true for every person you will encounter because buried deep in the heart of every human being is a longing to go home, is a longing for restoration, is a longing for shalom, for the peace, the pervasive, universe-wide peace that Jesus gives. I saw Les Mis Friday night. There are so many biblical motifs that run through that Phenomenal production. So many. We could talk for hours about those motifs. But one of them is the hope of restoration. And if you've seen the show, if you know the story, here's what I want you to observe. I want you to observe how the song led by the students at the barricades changes at the finale. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? But this is what you hear at the end. Do you hear the people sing, lost in the valley of the night? It is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest nights will end and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken, and all men will have their reward. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade is, there is a world you long to see. That's the story of the gospel. I've said this before. The gospel is way, way bigger than my forgiveness. The gospel is about the restoration of everything. And that's the story that we have to tell. So as we tell these truths and preach them and hold them dear, please remember, please remember this grand and glorious Big picture. And then the last two things. I've got to do this painfully quickly. The second word is vigilance. Read the passage. I won't reread it for you. Read the passage. And understand my brothers who serve with me as officers in this church and my members and friends and regular attenders who who are here. Let's remember that we are engaged in a fight. There is a battle. There is a real enemy. Paul warns about it as he admonishes these Ephesian elders. It's very clear in the passage. Please read it. But let's remember this. Let's remember this. The real enemy, the real enemy, my friends, is not people of other ethnicities. It is not people of other religious persuasions. It is not people of other cultures or races. 
The real enemy is not terrorists. God saves terrorists. He saved Paul. The real enemy. The real enemy is the invisible power, the concerted efforts of evil conspirators who blind and imprison and terrorize human beings in order to do their bidding. But remember this. We have a great warrior king on the other side of the veil. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers in heavenly places. But on the other side of that veil that separates the seen from the unseen is this great warrior who has promised to build his church. He has done it. He'll continue to do it. And when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not withstand it, that is military imagery. That is warfare imagery. That is envisioning the kingdom of darkness as a great fortress with iron gates, keeping all intruders out. And Jesus, the conquering hero, will not be stopped. He will pass through those gates. He will break them down. He will reach into those fortresses and he will rescue the prisoners from them. And there is no power in heaven or on earth that can withstand him. Remember that. Remember that. And then finally, remember this. And this I do speak to all of us, but I do speak this particularly to my fellow officers. The final word is virtue. I want you to notice in verses 31 to 35 that Paul sets himself before the Ephesian elders as an example. He does this throughout his letters, and he's doing it here in the book of Acts. And some people take offense at that. They think that there's an arrogance in the Apostle Paul when, whether in Ephesians or in his letters to Timothy and other places, First Thessalonians, Paul holds himself up as an example. People take umbrage. They think there's an arrogance in it. But please remember the nature of the scriptures which you hold in your hands. Please remember that these scriptures are inspired by God, that the ultimate and final author of these words that we have in our hands is God himself. And if you think it's arrogant for the Apostle Paul to hold himself up as an example, the greater arrogance would be for him to say to the Holy Spirit, you must not constrain me to write that. He's writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, setting himself before these Ephesian elders as an example to be followed. But here's the important reminder. The same Paul who sets himself before these elders as an example of faithful service, as an example of hard work and personal sacrifice, has throughout his letters, and I am sure in the course of his ministry, set himself before them as a model of repentance. Read Ephesians 2, and especially Romans 7. 
or the apostle identifies himself as the wretched man who needs to be delivered from this body of death. My brothers, let's be clear about this. We do not lead by setting ourselves up. We lead by lowering ourselves down. We lead by acknowledging gladly in the presence of those whom God has given to us to shepherd and to serve. We lead as repenters. Brothers, these folks around you don't need help in learning to be righteous. They do that quite naturally. What they need help with and what they need modeled is repentance. And so God help us. God help us to love, defend, protect these verities which are incarnate in Jesus who is truth. God help us to be vigilant. And God help us to set an example for the flock both in righteousness and in repentance. Let's pray together and come to the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. You are Lord and King. You are God on high. And you have come among us to redeem and deliver us and to put all things right. Capture our hearts again with this story. May we In fact, look beyond the barricades to the world you are building and which you will bring to completion at the day of your return. And give us grace. Give me as pastor, these men as elders and deacons, and all of us together as congregants, give us grace as we seek to walk this path that you've set before us. We pray in your name. Amen.